read from Matthew 12, um, 38 to 40, and then Matthew 19, 27 to 30, if you want to follow along. So Matthew 12, 38, 38 to 40. It's a few numbers. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. And then Matthew 19, 27 to 30. Then Peter said in reply, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Great, thanks very much, Jen. Um, gives me real pleasure, real privilege to welcome our guest. has been with us uh, throughout the day and is going to be speaking to us in just a few moments, um, Bishop James Jones. Uh, Bishop James is married to Sarah, and he has um, three daughters. Two of them are just ordinary daughters, and one is a favorite. (laughs) Uh, And two grandchildren as well. Uh, He served for pretty much 20 years as a bishop in the Church of England, first of all in in Hull for four years, and then uh, in uh, Liverpool Diocese, perhaps where he's uh, best known um, for his work in chairing the independent inquiry around Hillsborough. Um, and he, he talks about that in his latest book. He's written on a number of topics, on, on suffering, on creation, and uh, care of the world, and he'll be speaking on that uh, topic tonight. But this is his latest book, Justice for Christ's Sake, uh, and he speaks movingly about ministry in the city, for example, and, and not least his experience on uh, the Hillsborough Inquiry. Jeremy, Jeremy Vine actually writes, read this for the chapter on Hillsborough alone. And for those of us who are here at lunchtime uh, listening to Bishop James speak on his reflections on that, deeply moving and, and powerful time and uh, incredible to see the influence that just one person has had to exercise power to shift uh, the, the, the sort of climate if you like in that city and to bring justice to, to individuals there. Uh, as I say he sat on a number of other inquiries he, he's still very active although retired from uh, serving as a bishop so would you please give a warm welcome to Bishop James Jones. Let's pray for Bishop James as he speaks. Father, thank you that you call us into relationship with you. We thank you for calling Bishop James to know you personally as Lord and Savior. We thank you for placing on his heart, his life, uh, the, the mantle of the cause of the least and the last and the lonely, the lost. We thank you for his heart and passion for justice and that we do right in this world of ours. We pray for him as he speaks to us now 
Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, wills to act. In Jesus' name, amen. Tim, thank you very much for inviting me and for allowing me to share in the joy of the worship that I know Jemima enjoys week on week here. It's lovely to be part of this family of God. You very kindly mentioned uh, the book, uh, Justice for Christ's Sake. Some years ago, I wrote another book about the problem of suffering, and the title of the book was uh, Why Do People Suffer? Uh, when the proofs came back from the printers, uh, they'd left off the question mark, so the title of the book ran, Why Do People Suffer James Jones? Now, this is... <laughs> This is what Jemima has been thinking for a number of years and uh, what the Diocese of Liverpool thought. Um, uh, hopefully you won't be thinking that too much uh, tonight as I contribute to this service of worship on Climate Sunday. We need to be honest at the outset and realize that there is no human activity that does not have an environmental impact we all affect our environment. Uh, I too have flown. I remember coming uh, to Liverpool once from a conference uh, in Belfast. Uh, I wasn't wearing a dog collar. I was uh, very informal and uh, as I got on to the EasyJet flight, I could see these storm clouds gathering over the city of Belfast and I thought, well, we're in for a really bad flight, and sure enough, we were. We were all seated, it was a full plane, we were all strapped in, and the flight attendants weren't moving, they were strapped in too. And, uh, and very soon, we were being buffeted about uh, through the clouds, and it was a very scary moment. And nobody was talking. Uh, you sensed, actually, that everybody was praying, whether they believed in God or not. And uh, you could just see these thought bubbles above people's heads, oh, God, help us land safely. Well, we did, because I'm here to tell the tale. And as we uh, descended into uh, John Lennon International Airport uh, in Liverpool, uh, the man next to me uh, started uh, talking. And he said, uh, he said, I knew, um, I knew this was going to be a really, really bad flight. Um, in fact, I didn't tell you because I didn't want to frighten you. He said, I'm an airline pilot. And turned to me and said, and what do you do? I said, actually, I'm a priest, but I didn't tell you because I didn't want to frighten you. <laughs> My journey, understanding the importance of the environment, began just over 20 years ago. And uh, I had an encounter with a lot of young people who made me think again about the earth. It was Lent 2000, and we had decided as a diocese that the bishop would go round the whole of the diocese of Liverpool and go into as many secondary schools as possible and meet with as many young people between the ages of 16 and 18. And so I went to 16 different comprehensive schools, not church ones, though we had a lot of uh, church schools in the diocese. 
and the doors were thrown wide open for me to go and meet and listen to uh, the dreams and dreads of young people as we face this uh, next millennium. And uh, we did uh, preparation of a number of subjects. I told a story, you may know it, about Isaac Newton, scientist, Christian believer, who had on his desk in his study a model of the solar system with a planet circling the sun. And one day a friend of his came in, who was also a scientist, an atheist, and he saw this beautiful model on Newton's desk and said to Isaac Newton, well, who made that? And Isaac Newton, uh, being a good Christian, uh, seized his opportunity and said, I'm sorry, um, what did you say? Um, uh, who made it? And he said, I just came down here this morning. I opened my study door, and there it appeared out of nowhere ex nihilo. And the atheist friend got very angry and said, my dear friend, don't be so stupid. Who made this model? And Isaac Newton replied, my dear friend, if you refuse to believe that this model exists on my desk without a maker, how foolish of you to believe that the real thing, billions and billions times greater, could exist without a creator. Now, anybody who's done any philosophy will know that for every good argument for the existence of God, there's an equally good argument for the non-existence of God. But the story made the point that creation, well, it's not fanciful to believe that creation has what that word implies, a creator. But then we showed a video about what might happen to the earth if we didn't start looking after the planet. And admittedly, it has some pretty apocalyptic scenes of the disasters that would be imminent. And at the end of this little video clip, I said to these young people, sometime as many as 250 in the fall, I said, on a scale of naught to 10, how worried are you about the future of the earth? Naught is not worried at all. Ten is really scared. I said, please, would you put your hand up if you place yourself between five and ten? This is no exaggeration. In every single one of the 16 schools, 100% of all the hands went up. I was taken aback. I then said, okay, given your concern about the future of the earth, to what extent ought we to do something about it? And notice that little word ought, because we might start digging around asking, where does that sense of ought, right and wrong, come from? So, to what extent should we do something about it? Nought is don't bother. Ten is pull your finger out. Please put your hands up if you placed yourself between five and ten. 98, 99% of all the hands went up. And I came away from that encounter with all those young people in the millennium year, not so much challenging, but challenged by their attitude to the earth. And it made me think again and ask the question, what did Jesus have to say about the earth?
And to be frank, 20 years ago, if you'd put that question to me, I would have scratched my head and said, well, don't know really. And for me at that stage, the environment was something that really belonged to activists and didn't seem to have any general impact on me or most of our society. So I had some study leave coming up, excuse me. I had some study leave coming up and I went back to my old theological college, Wycliffe Hall. And I decided that I would read in the area of ecology and in New Testament theology again to see what the connection might be between theology and ecology. I remember going to Blackwell's and just scanning the shelves in the ecology section and picking out 10 books that seemed to me to be well-reviewed and have something to say. And I started reading the Gospels again uh, in Greek, trying to get as close as possible to the sayings of Jesus, asking myself all of the time as I read the Gospels, did Jesus have anything to say about the earth? Well, we've already made one discovery in this service, and that's by saying the Lord's Prayer. The next time you say the Lord's Prayer, would you please preface it by saying, this is a prayer for the earthing of heaven. Did Jesus have anything to say about the earth? Well, there it is in those 56 words. There is Jesus telling us that we should be praying that God's will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Did Jesus have anything to say about the earth? Of course he did. That we should all of us be working for the earthing of heaven's values in the place where we live, this earth. The second discovery I made, and I shared a little bit of this over lunch today, was I'd enlisted on a course in Islamic theology and I wanted to find out what the Muslim ethic of the environment was. And also I wanted to find out what the Jewish ethic of the environment was. So the chief rabbi at the time was Jonathan Sachs and I went to see him in his home to ask him about the Jewish ethic. And I told him that in the process, I was studying what Jesus' attitude might be to the earth. To which he said, well, of course, you know, James, that the only title that Jesus ever takes to himself is to call himself the child of the earth. Oh, you say to me, I've never seen that in the Gospels, and I've read the Gospels quite a lot. But what you have read in the Gospels is Jesus talking about himself as the Son of Man. Well, in Aramaic and Hebrew, the Son of Man is this, the child of the one hewn from the earth. Did Jesus have anything to say about the earth? That was how he saw himself. Not just as the Son of God, but the Son of Man, the Son of Adam, 
Adam, Adamar, the one who is hewn out of the earth. And then I had a very special moment, and I hesitate to attribute this to the Holy Spirit because in my time I've heard a lot of people attribute a lot of crazy things to the Holy Spirit. But this thought came into my head like somebody crashing into you from the side on the bike. Just out of nowhere came this thought after my conversation with the chief rabbi. Are there any times in the Gospels when Jesus calls himself the child of the earth and in the same breath talks about the earth? Well, I went back to my New Testament and I read it more avidly than I'd read it for many a year. And I discovered that there is a unique collection of sayings in the Gospels where Jesus calls himself the child of the earth and in the same breath talks about the earth. Now this sounds very arrogant, and forgive me for this arrogance, but as far as I know, and I've checked this out with New Testament scholars, nobody but nobody has ever done a study of this unique collection of sayings where Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, the child of the earth, and in the same breath talks about the earth. Well, you may be scratching your head now, thinking, well, I wonder, wonder where that is. I wonder what these things are. My friends, you've just heard one. You heard one this evening in the Gospel reading from Matthew's Gospel when Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, the child of the earth, will be laid in the heart of the earth. Not just the earth, but in the heart of the earth. The Son of Man will be laid in the heart of the earth. Now, my friends, what happened when they did that? Well, you'll remember that before, during the crucifixion, there were a number of events, and one was the temple curtain torn from top to bottom. The other was an earthquake. So as the child of the earth was laid in the heart of the earth, earthquakes at such a thing, as if to say that the death of Jesus on the cross was not just for personal salvation, but for the saving of the whole of creation, including the earth. And then, my friends, what happens when God raises the child of the earth from the heart of the earth on the day of resurrection? The earth quakes again a second time. The earth is more eloquent than the temple curtain. And I have to tell you that for many years, 
when preaching and teaching about the death and resurrection of Jesus, I have often talked about the temple curtain being torn in two and the way between God and humanity is open now because of the death of Jesus. But I had singularly overlooked the significance of the earth quaking twice before his burial and at his resurrection. And other strange things happened. You remember that when Mary comes to the tomb and sees Jesus, she thought she saw the gardener. She did see the gardener. It wasn't the gardener of Gethsemane. It was the gardener of Eden because God was the first gardener who planted a garden in Eden. And Jesus, as the manifestation of God on earth, was indeed the gardener. And the Gospel of John is famous for all its ironies. And here was the great and last irony in the Gospel of John, that when Mary said that she had seen the gardener, she had indeed seen the gardener of all creation. And is this the earth quaking? What St. Paul was talking about in Romans 8 when he talks about the whole of creation groaning, waiting for liberation through the death of Jesus. I think it was. Just before lockdown, I had the opportunity to go for the first time to Jerusalem. And there, in the church of the Holy Sepulchre, there is an altar where it is thought that Jesus was crucified. And beneath that altar, on a different level, is an aperture in the rock. And you can put your hand in and you can feel the cleft in the rock where the earth quaked when Jesus died for the sins of all the world, where he died not just for the human family, but for all creation. And then when Jesus is looking towards his own future, beyond death, that future which sustained him while he was here on earth. He talks about when the Son of Man, when the child of the earth will come again at the renewal of all things. Now these truths are so important because within Christianity and indeed within Islam, there are two views about the future of the earth. There are those who espouse what could be called a theology of obliteration, that the world will come to an end and will all be consumed and destroyed. And there are those who believe in a theology of renewal, that this earth which now groans will be renewed by God. And Jesus talks about this renewal of all things which we heard in our second reading so that that renewal becomes the answer to the Lord's Prayer. 
May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the answer. The renewal of everything. And St. Paul captures Jesus' role in all of this by using two little words, two prepositions in the letter to the Colossians where he talks about how all things have come into being through and for Christ. Through Christ and for Christ, echoing that wonderful prologue in the Gospel of John, that everything has come into being through him. And this is the point. This is the point why you and I are concerned about COP26. This is the point where you and I are concerned about what happens to the planet. Not just for the sake of future generations, though that should be a priority, but for this fundamental Christian truth that to desecrate creation which has come into being through Christ and for Christ is nothing other than a blasphemy for it is to undo God's creative work in and through and for Jesus Christ. So yes, we will be concerned about the planet because of the disasters that will ensue if we don't. Did you know these figures about the Thames Barrier? The Thames Barrier was raised four times in the 1980s. It was raised over 30 times in the 1990s. And up until the year 2020, it has been raised some 200 times. If the city of London, with all its global financial institutions, if the Palace of Westminster, with all its political power, had been flooded as many times as the Thames barrier has been raised, we would not be so casual about climate change and what is happening to the earth. There are disasters already. Sadly, the disasters are being felt by those people with little economic or political power to change anything in parts of the world that are challenged by poverty. And those of us who are party to the power to do something about it, we haven't yet felt the effects because we're protected by the likes of the Thames Barrier. But you and I are gathered here together on this Climate Justice Sunday because we believe not just in humanity, 
but in divinity. We believe in God and his passion for the world that he has created. What I'd like to do now is to read you two poems. One you'll be probably familiar with. Gerard Manley Hopkins was a Liverpool poet and he wrote a beautiful poem called God's Grandeur. I'm going to read that. And then I'm going to read another one which you're probably not so familiar with, but it's probably the first, if not the first, one of the first poems in English. And it's found in Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People by the monk Kaidman. And as I read these poems, I'd like you to get yourself in a comfortable position and to close your eyes because poems can reach parts of us that statistics never will. So I'll keep a moment of silence and then I will read these two poems that we can drink in and be blessed by the insights that these two poets give us. St. Paul said, all things have come into being through and for Christ. God's grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's grudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast 
and with our bright wings. Bede writes, Suddenly in a dream, Kaidman saw a man standing beside him who called him by name. Kaidman, he said, sing me a song. I don't know how to sing, he replied. It is because I cannot sing that I left the feast and came here. The man who addressed him then said, but you shall sing to me. What should I sing about? He replied, Sing about the creation of all things, the other answered. And Kaidman immediately began to sing verses in praise of God the Creator that he had never heard before, and their theme ran thus Praise we the fashioner now of heaven's fabric the majesty of his might and his mind's wisdom, work of the world warden, worker of all wonders, how he, the Lord of glory everlasting, wrought first for the race of men heaven as a roof tree, then made he middle earth to be their mansion. It's good to pray this evening for COP26. The patron saint of Glasgow is a man called Saint Mungo. And I've taken Mungo in conclusion as a mnemonic for what needs to happen at COP26. M is for magnanimity that we must put ourselves in the shoes of others, especially those who are currently most disadvantaged by the climate crisis. U is for universal, that although all the delegates will rightly represent their own nations, each and every one must see themselves also as an ambassador for the universe. N is for nature, that if the outcome of COP26 is bad for nature, it is bad for us all, now and in the future. G is for green, that all our decision-making, be it personal, political, purchasing, must consider the well-being of the whole earth for it is not a limitless larder. O is for only. There is only one planet, and we must live within our means for the sake of humanity, for the sake of the future of humanity.
and for Christ's sake. Let us pray. Holy Jesus, child of Adam, child of Mary, child of the earth, come in glory and renew the face of the earth. Please repeat each line after me. Holy Jesus, child of Adam, child of Mary, child of the earth, come in glory and renew the face of the earth. 